the willingness to go along with the lie. That's precisely what sustains that harmful, oppressive regime. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Aaron Cariotti, author of The New Abnormal and former director of the Medical Ethics Program at UCI Health. What is an unjust law and how do you identify it? What is the difference between totalitarianism and dictatorship? At the end point of that process, you don't even need concentration camps or secret police or mass surveillance anymore because every citizen starts silencing their fellow citizens. Cariotti is one of the plaintiffs in the landmark Missouri versus Biden free speech case. Even the Treasury Department was involved in censorship. The Census Bureau was involved in censorship. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Dr. Aaron Cariotti, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. It's always great to be with you, Jan. Let's talk about something you told me a little bit earlier today. It really captured my imagination. You said, the totalitarian systems of the 20th century, they always begin by monopolizing what counts as rationality and what counts as knowledge. So first of all, justify that to me, right? Yeah. And, and let's, let's use it as a jumping point. Yeah, so when people hear the word totalitarian, they often think of secret police, you know, men in jackboots, and concentration camps, or gulags, or mass surveillance. And all those features are important, but the real starting point and the, the, the core of a totalitarian system is an ideology that monopolizes what counts as rationality and what counts as knowledge, what counts as a legitimate question to ask. So if you raise your hand and ask an inconvenient question, the Marxist ideologue or the Nazi ideologue or the fascist ideologue doesn't say, hey, Jan, let's, let's sit down and, and debate this question or you present your evidence and I'll present mine and we'll try to learn from one another. They simply say, no, you're questioning the ideology because you're infected with bourgeois consciousness or you know, for the Nazi, you're just infected with Jew consciousness. You're protecting your own class-based interest or you're protecting your own, um, uh, you know, your own uh, interest to advance your aims and therefore you're not worth talking to. Right? You're not part of the enlightened elites that understand the direction of history, that understand where things need to go. And so I'm not going to debate you. I'm just going to exclude you from public conversation. That's where the concentration camps and the gulags and the secret police come in to enforce the ideology. One of the reasons I think now, today, in Western countries, which we don't tend to think of as totalitarian, one of the reasons that I'm very concerned about the direction that we're moving is because if you look at uh, new phenomena, new trends like government-sponsored censorship, they mirror that starting point of totalitarian systems. They, they put forward a particular ideology or partic particular public policy proposal and say, citizens are not allowed to question this. Citizens are not allowed to present evidence that might call this public policy into question. And in fact, if they do so, we're going to label them as dangerous. We're going to algorithmically, let's say, in, you know, on social media, exclude them from the realm of public conversation. We're going to limit their reach. We're going to limit the ability of other people to hear their ideas. This is where totalitarian systems always begin. And in fact, this is where totalitarian systems always 
and end up, once the ideology is sufficiently adopted by an, enough members of the population, once, once people get used to the idea that I'm not allowed to ask questions and they just internalize those prohibitions, at, at the end point of that process, you don't even need concentration camps or secret police or mass surveillance anymore because every citizen becomes a, a, a member of the Gestapo or the KGB. Every citizen starts silencing uh, their fellow citizens if they raise any inconvenient questions that might challenge the ideology. This, according to Hannah Arendt, who studied the totalitarian systems of the 20th century, uh, this becomes then the worst form of imprisonment, in a sense. Uh, and she, drew, she draws a distinction between dictatorships that rule through external force, and they rule by means of instilling fear in the population. You know, I'm not going to say the wrong thing because I don't want to get punished by the regime. Uh, I'm not going to challenge the dictatorial ruler and his ideas because you know, he might then come down on me or do something to harm me or harm my family. A totalitarian regime uses external force initially to try to funnel people into the ideology, but eventually the totalitarian system no longer needs to use external force because people have internalized the ideology. In a dictatorship, you still at least have the interior freedom, even if your exterior freedom is constrained, you still have the interior freedom to think your own thoughts and to have your own opinions and to have your own judgments. And you, know, you might voice them only very carefully uh, and you might not voice them at all, but you, could still, you can still you know, think them on your own. But in a totalitarian system, at the, in a perfectly enacted totalitarian system, you don't even have that because the ideology has become so internalized that the questions no longer occur to you. The dissenting thoughts no longer occur to you. You're in a prison with invisible bars without even realizing that, you, 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 that, that you're in prison. Your interior freedom has also been subsumed into that totalitarian system. Well, so here's the thing, right? Um, I think we both mutually have become aware of this kind of on parallel tracks, but people are not all the same. And there are some people that are, it, it apparently, as it happens, are incredibly suggestible. Yeah. Right? In fact, so suggestible that if there, it seems like the con social consensus, societal consensus is something, the next day they might change their mind if that is somehow projected. There's another group of people, though, that are somehow immune. And we know a lot of these people um, just kind of wondering what the heck is going on, yeah. right? And sh shocked. And then there's kind of a middle group. And this sort of, this mirrors something. I remember this Aldous Huxley interview from, I think, the, from the 60s where he talks about a quarter of the population being easy to, say, hypnotize, another quarter which is immune, and everybody else is kind of, just depends on, on the situation, right? And I've seen this mirrored also in uh, Lobachevsky's work, where he talks, he, sort of in the opening, he's explaining how he, you know, saw the, the sort of the totalitarian system coming into his, uh, the Jagiellonian University where he was studying psychology and watched a similar sort of dynamic, a similar sort of proportions, maybe not exactly. This, this is, I've been thinking about this a lot. So in this scenario that you're talking about, now getting to the point, there's always these people that are, let's call them freedom-oriented and somehow just, you know, or 
reality oriented. I don't know. That might be saying too much, but freedom oriented. Like, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not gonna accept this thing that I'm kind of supposed to believe. Even in, the, I, I would expect those people will continue to exist. And they're, and of course, in these totalitarian states, they're marginalized, right, right. or killed, or right, whatever, right. So, so, so account for the, if you agree with me, account for this, yeah. Yeah, I do. This does seem to be a recurrent phenomenon where, in my view, it's probably 30% of people highly hypnotizable, uh, prone to mass formation, however you want to characterize that, who, for one reason or another, are going to go along with whatever the authorities are saying or whatever the general consensus appears to be, and they're going to have a diminished ability, let's say, or diminished interest in questioning that consensus. Probably a smaller proportion of the population, maybe 10, 15 percent, uh, is going to make up the people who are less prone to feel like I have to affiliate with the group, I have to go along with the consensus, uh, and who are capable of sort of standing against that tide or standing against um, that social pressure and really having independent ideas. It doesn't mean that all of their ideas are good. Their ideas may be wrongheaded as well, but at least temperamentally, however they're built um, by, uh, by temperament or some combination of temperament and experience, they're not prone to move in that direction. And the rest of the folks in the middle, I'm not very good at math, whatever the remainder would be, I think can go one way or the other depending on uh, their situation, depending on their interests. And th this, it, just putting on my psychiatrist hat for a moment, this probably has something to do with innate temperamental traits that make some people have a stronger felt need for group affiliation, which all of us have. I mean, no human being can exist in perfect isolation. John Donne said, you know, no man is an island sufficient unto himself. Uh, solitary confinement is one of the worst punishments we can inflict on human beings because, you know, human beings are social animals and our, our, our bodies, our brains do not function well in isolation from other human beings. We're built to be in relationship. But I think the need for strong affiliation, you could have variation within the population. You can have some people that are able to feel like I can maintain my relationships, I can maintain my place in the social realm without having to agree with other people. Uh, without having to hold the same opinions, and I can stand against some degree of social pressure that others might find intolerable. When I look at that 10, 15%, whatever it is, of let's call them dissidents in uh, societies that move in authoritarian or totalitarian directions, it's hard for me to identify one particular personality type or one particular type of life experience uh, it's certainly hard, you can't identify them based on political affiliation. So, you know, the, that group cuts across our, our typical left-right distinctions that we see at least in American political life. So what is it that makes up that group of people that is different from the rest? I think it's a really interesting question, you know, how the dissidents came to their dissenting opinions. And after talking to many of them over the last 
three years, um, some of them have experiences coming from a prior totalitarian regime, uh, and they know what it was like to live under Soviet communism or live in one of the Eastern Bloc states or they you know, came from Cuba under Castro and they say, they say, I look around now and I can see many of the things that I was fleeing from. Uh, you can hear that from people coming to the United States from China, for example, these days. Uh, that there's a kind of convergence between the way in which ideologies are functioning in China and the Chinese Communist Party is, is controlling the flow of information controlling how people think and trends that are now developing in Western nations, including the United States. So sometimes I think it's life experience with uh, the way these things can go really, really bad and lead in, uh, in seriously harmful directions for society. But, you know, I think other people um, come at this based on other life experiences and um, being forged in, you know, in, in being, being willing to stand up to other kinds of, of challenges where they decided, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go along with this thing. I'm not going to sort of compromise my integrity or pretend to believe something that I have serious doubts about. And I think we need to try to figure out, you know, what makes those people tick so that we can cultivate more of that in our system of education, uh, which we're clearly not doing now. Another thing, another trend that I've noticed, and it's not by no means universal, but is people that are, have strong faith in many cases. Um, like I see, I see a disproportionate amount of people with, that have strong faith that kind of aren't as impacted. And I wonder, so as we were talking here, I found myself wondering whether that might not help people who aren't, say, in the middle group, right? If we're, we're accepting this sort of, you know, division of people to, 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 to have that yeah. be inoculated in some way. Yeah, I think one of the reasons for that, I agree with you, uh, very often uh, it's people of faith that are willing to stand against a regime and, and question it. Uh, human life is extremely complicated and no one individual human being is able to figure out everything in terms of how should I live and what's true and what's not true. Uh, we, you know, we like to think of ourselves as hard-headed, empirically minded, you know, testing ideas. But the fact is most of what we hold to be true, we believe based on faith. And by faith, I don't mean necessarily faith in divine revelation, but faith in what other people have told us, right? So I have not actually gone to outer space and seen definitively that the world is round, but apparently some people have, and I have no reason to believe that they may be deceiving me about the fact that the earth is round. And so I'm going to, and you know, you go through any of the subjects that you learned in school, most of the science you learned in school, you didn't run those experiments yourself to confirm those findings. You're taking it in a sense on the authority of people who are supposed to be experts are supposed to know this. And, and most of what we know, I think, operates in that fashion. And it has to, because we're just, we're, we're social animals and we're not capable of wrapping our heads around all the complexities of life. I think people intuitively understand that. People intuitively want there to be an authority that they can trust. Again, especially we Americans, we tend to think of ourselves as sort of anti-authoritarian and, and you know, willing to be independent-minded and challenge 
and challenge consensus. But you know, even even rugged American individualists still want a news source or a source of information that they can trust. Still want to believe that um, you know public officials who have responsibility for you know this or that aspect of our lives more or less know what they're doing and you know and are, are doing a decent job because otherwise what's what's the alternative to that the alternative to that is pretty pretty terrifying that i can't trust anyone and nobody knows what the heck is going on um, and if you don't have faith in something transcendent then the highest authority is going to be some form of human authority for you. Um, the highest entity or institution or individual that I trust is, is going to be probably whoever society puts forward as the ruling or the governing class. Whereas if I have faith in a transcendent God, or if I have faith in a transcendent moral order that goes beyond my particular society or my particular culture or my particular moment in history, that allows me to challenge any one or another human authority as having something above them that they need to, in a sense, respond to or be responsive to. That allows me to understand that there can be such a thing, for example, as an unjust law. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., letter from a Birmingham jail, articulates the idea of civil disobedience, that there are some cases in which citizens are, you know, without advocating for just complete anarchy, he said, there's some situations in which citizens are morally permitted and may even be morally compelled to disobey a law that has been enacted by a governing authority. And so then the question is, well, what's the criteria for doing that? How do I know if a particular law is just or unjust? That the legal ideology of, of legal positivism just says, well, the law is whatever the ruling authority says it is, and you, you can't really challenge it. The law is just the law because it's declared, and there's no higher authority that it answers to. But an older tradition of classical philosophy that Martin Luther King draws on in that, he draws on the ideas, for example, of uh, St. Augustine, and he draws on the ideas of Thomas Aquinas to say, no, there is a higher law, there is a higher authority that human law has to be responsive to. Uh, there is a, a, an idea of justice that is, that is knowable, that is inscribed on the human heart. This, is, this, is, this comes from the, the natural law tradition and philosophy, that human laws are either in accord with or they're in violation of. And if they're in violation of law, of, of, of the natural law or the higher moral law, then they're not legitimate. A, a law that is not in accord with the natural law is no law at all, would be the formulation from Thomas Aquinas. And that is the basis for being able to challenge what otherwise we would probably take to be the highest authority, which is, you know, whatever the government enacts and is going to punish me if I don't follow, um, that's, that's sort of the be-all and end-all of what's right and good um, and okay and just. And this older classical tradition of philosophy says, well, yeah, m much of the time that's true. You should generally obey traffic laws and criminal laws and so on and so forth. 
But there are situations in which a law that is passed by a duly elected legislative body may be something that you're actually permitted or maybe even required in some circumstances to disobey. So uh, all, all that is to say that if, if, you have, if you have faith in something that transcends your particular historical moment, for most people that's going to be, uh, that's going to be God, right? But it could, be, um, it could be a platonic idea of justice. I mean, there were ancient philosophers like Plato and Aristotle who came to many of these same conclusions without faith in uh, divine revelation or uh, uh, you know, a faith that would be analogous to uh, Judaism or Christianity or Islam. Uh, but for most people, that's going to be faith in a transcendent God that allows them to question uh, and to hold up an ideal that is higher even than um, you know, my own life or my own physical well-being, something that I would be willing to, to even die for. Um, you know, the highest form of witness to something like that, to, to a higher truth that should not be violated, are people who are willing to give their, their lives for that. Uh, people who are martyrs for the sake of the truth. Dissidents like Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We could see examples from history of others who said, no, rather than violate my conscience, rather than violate what I, what I hold to be true, what I know to be true, rather than lie publicly or take an oath um, that I don't actually believe in, I'm willing to sacrifice everything, including and up to uh, my, my life. If viewers have seen the film A Hidden Life, which came out a few years ago, it's about an Austrian uh, young man named Franz Jagerstatter. And Franz Jagerstatter, after Germany's sort of takeover during World War II, like all young men in Austria, he was conscripted into the German army. And he was actually willing to fight for the German army, but what he was unwilling to do was to take an oath of fidelity to Adolf Hitler, which all the members of the army were required to do. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not gonna take that oath because I don't believe it and because I don't want to pledge fidelity to that man or to his ideology. And as the film depicts, he's met with increasing pressure, including pressure from the people around him. His wife supported him. He had two young daughters. Uh, but, you know, the, the local mayor, his friends, um, uh, even some of the local uh, religious leaders were telling him, Look, you can believe whatever you want, but just, just sign the oath. Uh, just, uh, you know, just do this to, to save your own skin um, because you've got to take care of your family. You've got to you know, you have your whole life ahead of you. And the other thing that they told him was if you, if you dissent and if you know, you're imprisoned or worse for refusing to sign this oath to Adolf Hitler, nobody's going to know about it. Because you're a nobody, you're, you're an ordinary farmer, you're gonna be forgotten by history, nobody's gonna care. It's not gonna have any effect on the dynamics of world history or on this war, on anything else. It will just be a useless gesture um, that will not make any difference. There's a scene, very powerful scene in the film, where he's in prison and he's being 
basically beaten by one of the prison guards. And, you know, he's kind of crumpled down on the floor after being just bludgeoned and, and beaten. It's, 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 you know, his face is bloodied, uh, his eye is swollen, and he's looking up at his tormentor. And the prison guard says, if you just sign this piece of paper, then you can be free. And my favorite line in the whole film is when Franz looks up at his tormentor in prison, being beaten, senseless, and says, but I'm already free. I'm already free because you cannot coerce me to violate my conscience. I have this interior freedom that even this totalitarian regime cannot take from me. He ends up dying. He ends up being executed uh, by Hitler in the end. He ends up giving his life for the sake of that witness, probably thinking that his friends are right. Nobody is ever going to know about me. They're not going to make a film about me uh, one day. And yet he was willing for the sake of his own integrity to stand against that regime when everyone else was going along with the flow. Well, and these are, you know, these are the people that we, um, I think, insane when we're in a sane state as a society, we valorize. Yeah, correct. that's right. That's right. right. People today can look back and recognize that that was heroic, but the, the dissidents of their own day that are standing against an increasingly authoritarian regime, they, they very often don't recognize or they vilify. It's, it's very ironic. It's interesting that you mention oaths. Um, you know, you just have to pledge this oath. And I, I've seen a lot of, um, I've seen it discussed that a lot of, for example, what you need to do to get into a particular university, for example, or get a particular job, for example, involves some kind of a, a, almost like a cookie cutter boilerplate statement that in effect functions as a loyalty oath. I'm curious if you've thought about that. Yeah, I think this is really important because it is, it can be an apparently on the surface strong argument that in these kinds of circumstances, it doesn't matter what you say. You can, you can believe whatever you want interiorly. This is, just a, this is just an exterior formality that doesn't really matter. And the, the problem with that argument is going back to where we started. If totalitarian regimes are basically grounded in a lie and then basically defended by prohibiting anyone from questioning that lie. So people have to live in a kind of unreality that everyone knows is unreal, everyone knows is not true, everyone knows is not just or good, but nobody can say it. That's precisely what sustains that harmful, oppressive regime, is the, the willingness to go along with the lie. Solzhenitsyn, who I mentioned earlier, the great Soviet dissident, has a short essay for those who don't want to wade through the thousand pages of the Gulag Archipelago. Um, he has a short essay called, uh, I believe it's called Live Not by Lies. Uh, Rod Dreher wrote a book uh, of the same title a few years ago, where basically Solzhenitsyn says, um, what can ordinary people do in a situation like Soviet communism? you may not be able to vocally protest and resist the regime. But at the very least, what you can do 
is refuse to publicly lie, right? It doesn't mean you have to always tell the truth. Like there is prudence and there is, you know, trying to navigate. And there's, there's a duty to try to not throw your life away arbitrarily when it's not going to do any good. But where you have to draw the line is no one can force you to publicly say something that you don't actually believe. Vaclav Havel, the, the great Czech dissident who later become, became president of the Czech Republic after the fall of communism, wrote a, another very powerful essay called The Power of the Powerless. And he talks about, in this essay, he talks about an ordinary person, a grocer who runs his little, his little you know, corner store selling his, his food and selling his goods. And, um, and at one point, even though he's not necessarily forced to, there's, there is social pressure kind of in, in the climate around him to go along with the regime and to, to fly the flag. Um, I guess the analogy today would be, you know, everyone during the month of June has to, has to put up the rain, rainbow flag as part of, you know, their, their endorsement of the LGBT ideology. And a lot of corporations, a lot of individuals will sort of go along with this whether they actually fully endorse this particular movement or this particular ideology or not. But, but in his day, it was communist ideology. So this grocer puts up a little sign that says, Workers of the World Unite, um, which may sound innocuous, but it was a Marxist slogan, right, from the Communist Manifesto. manifesto. Um, and then Havel goes through in the course of the essay describing the effect that that little act of kind of complicity or compliance from a grocer who didn't actually believe that slogan at all or the ideology behind it, the effect that that has on his soul and the effect that that has on the wider society when basically everyone starts behaving in that way. And so I think the reason it's important not to lie publicly, to live not by lies, uh, maybe it doesn't mean speaking the truth in all circumstances, all of the time, or saying every single thought that pops into your head in every you know, public or social circumstance. But it, at the very least, it means uh, not, not saying something that you know to be false. Is that a society that becomes characterized by that is a society where, again, people end up in that interior prison that I described earlier, that the interior prison that Franz Jagerstadter saved himself from Right? He's, he's there in prison. He's, his, all of his external freedoms have been taken from him. Um, even even his, his freedom to exist in his body without being subjected to pain has been taken from him. He's being tortured, right? But he maintains that interior freedom and he's able to look up at the prison guard and say, I don't need to sign anything. I don't need to tell a lie publicly. I don't need to make this oath because I'm already free. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about this because uh, a couple of days ago someone sent me a recent interview with, I think the Telegraph did with Jordan Peterson, and I had someone sent it. It was up on my computer. I have a, usually a hundred tabs open at a given time. It's, it starts playing, and I hear, you know, a familiar voice, yeah. right? And, and, and he says basically that the totalitarian system is ruled by the lie. Exactly. Which I thought was an absolutely fascinating and, and, and apt formulation. I just never heard that. But, but it, it, I mean, it's, 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 it's this exact idea. Who, who rules? Who actually rules a totalitarian 
state. Well, you say, what's well, the it's Stalin or it's whoever, but actually no, because, and then it made me think of, um, you know, I've spoken with a number of solidarity dissidents, right. time dissidents. Yeah. And one thing that I learned, which I was surprised to learn, was that, that the sort of, during the 80s, there was a very short time period where suddenly, and I think this was spurred on by, to some extent by the murder of Popiewuszko, uh, uh, okay, the, 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 the well-known priest who kind of gave his life again. Yeah. It's a similar scenario as, yeah. as you've been describing here. Um, and you know, the solidarity um, union, trade union, grew massively in the, in the span of a month or two. And it's almost like that, it was some kind of tipping point happened. Yeah. And suddenly, a whole lot of people, maybe a third, maybe half of the population, wasn't ready to go with the lie anymore. And they indicated that by joining the Solidarity Training Union. And at that point, it was over, yeah. actually. Yeah. I mean, sure, the Soviet Union could have come in with the tanks or whatever, but the, that whatever was ruling there at the time was done. It was, and that's fascinating. I, I mean, again, we're, we're sort of, we're looking at now history through the events of the present day and wondering how is this all going to play? No, I think that's exactly right. That, um, that totalitarian regime is ruled by the lie. Stalin's gonna die, he's gonna be replaced by Khrushchev or whoever came after him. Uh, and yet the, the regime soldiers on under the lie of the ideology. And if that's the case, if, if totalitarian society is ruled by the lie and sustained by the lie, then the only thing ultimately that can bring it down is the truth. This is, I think, one of the reasons why when Karol Wojtyla, the Polish uh, bishop, was elected pope, John Paul II, in 1978, I believe it was, the KGB was terrified. Um, the Soviet regime was very concerned because they knew that at some point he's going to return to Poland and uh, Napoleon once, you know, made the snarky remark, you know, how many troops does the Pope have? And of course the answer is zero. That this is not a man who has temporal power, right? This is not a man uh, who has an invading army that could overthrow any particular regime. He was going to return to Poland, which he did shortly after his election, and he's going to stand up and he's going to speak. And given who he is and given his position, um, he's a person who's in a position to simply speak the truth. And basically, when he came back to Poland for his first visit, which um, in some sense was, uh, was a seed for the beginning of the Solidarity Movement, basically what he told the Polish people, the first thing he said was, be not afraid. Right? Because you're, you're afraid to speak the truth, because of this regime. And the first thing that you need to do is to overcome your fear. And then he, he told religious truths that were you know, obviously talking about um, the Catholic faith. It was very influential in Poland. And Poland historically is a very strongly Catholic nation. So obviously he was talking about Christ and he was talking about um, the gospel and divine revelation. But he was also speaking some basic human truths uh, about what does it mean to be a human person, to be rational, to be free, to be oriented toward love, to be fulfilled by being in communion with other people. I mean, the, 
These are basic human truths that certainly many non-Catholics can understand and, and accept as well, even if they don't embrace um, you know, divine revelation or the, or the Christian faith. He spent a lot of time talking about what does it mean to be a human being and what does it mean to live in society without getting political. He never actually criticized, directly criticized the regime, but everyone knew exactly what he was, exactly what he was doing and there was, there was panic, widespread panic in Moscow. Uh, so that, that's one example, and there were, there were other examples of uh, you know, heroic individuals in, in Poland and elsewhere in the Eastern Bloc, uh, standing up and being willing to speak the truth. And in a sense, that, um, that avalanche, avalanche can start with one person. You mentioned, you mentioned someone who's martyred. Martyrdom is the highest witness to the truth. Someone believe something so strongly that they're willing to make the ultimate sacrifice rather than deny it. You know, something that just strikes me as, as you're speaking here is, you know, Pope John Paul II was known for his integrity. That people, there's general agreement around this, Papiushko likewise. Yeah. Um, and so there's been, I see a lot of uh, attempts to kind of dirty up people who sure. are known for their integrity because yeah. perhaps because they have that kind of, you know, ultimately have this ability to kind of push things in a different directions as they hold their, their moral ground. Yeah, um, no, I think that's right. The, the regime that is based on lies is always going to want to tar and feather and undermine anyone who's willing to tell the truth. And you know, you can you can find something on everyone. Nobody's perfect, even even a great even a great man like the ones that we've been talking about, even a great woman of tremendous integrity is going to have flaws. Um, so there's that and then there's if you have a regime based on lies, there's no scruples about just simply making things up and propagandizing and telling straight up lies about a person to smear them and tarnish them. And this is very this is very characteristic of totalitarian societies. They don't want martyrs on the other side that inspire movements or embolden people because cowardice is contagious too, but, but courage is also contagious. And so they'll do everything that they can uh, to silence that person or to tarnish that person's reputation. You've been involved in, um, you know, I guess initially, you know, you, you had no intention of becoming uh, I don't know, a kind of a lightning rod for, right? of course, you were um, at University of California, Irvine. You were, the, you were in charge of the ethics, the medical ethics department or program, um, and you lost your job because you had took a stand. I mean, I encourage others to look back at some of our earlier interviews yeah. and, and to, to kind of learn that story a bit more. Um, today, you're kind of in the midst of everything again with being one of these private plaintiffs on the Missouri versus Biden uh, lawsuit. Where are things at? Well, to me, the issue of government-sponsored censorship, and even censorship by large, extraordinarily powerful private entities like social media companies, um, even if they're doing it on their own and not at the government's bidding, um, both of those things are happening, actually. And I think that issue of censorship is so vital and the First Amendment free speech rights are so vital right now because where are we at? I think we're at a hinge point, Jan. 
in the sense that there, were, there are two paths uh, that we may go down, and it's not yet been determined, not yet been decided which direction that this country and other Western nations are going to move in. One direction would be in a direction that is totalitarian in spirit, let's say, in the sense that um, we would end up in a place where we're ruled by technocrats, by so-called experts, most of them unelected, working for pr public or private or quasi-private entities that are publicly funded. Public-private partnership is the favorite yeah. term now, a, right? A, yeah, a kind yeah. of corporatist, yeah. right? The melding of state and corporate power is, is corporatism, or another word for that literally is fascism. That was Benito Mussolini's definition of fascism, is the merging of, of state and corporate power. So moving in that direction, where basically an elite group of supposedly enlightened sort of Gnostic elites decides what direction history is moving in and where things need to be going. And that's a society that I think most Americans don't want to live in, but we've already moved some way in that direction, I would say, certainly in the last four years, um, but even in the last 20 years, um, beginning I think with, with the War on Terror and the Patriot Act and then you know, building on, on that with the, with the threat of um, uh, terrorism first, the threat of uh, danger to public health and safety, uh, these things have been used as a fulcrum, as a, as a kind of lever to increase the powers of surveillance and control by means of digital te technologies, uh, by means, means of financial instruments, increasing centralized power and control over people's lives. And with censorship, you get to the point where you, you, build a, you build a system that is capable of sustaining lies, that is capable of sustaining ideologies and obstructing uh, anything that would question that ideology, not allowing certain ideas, not allowing certain questions, not allowing evidence that might contradict this regime to ever emerge into public consciousness. And if that is done uh, with a sufficient level of intensity, that system is perfected, it becomes really impossible for people to find sources of information, to track down dissenting opinions or ideas. Uh, and it's, it becomes virtually impossible for those ideas to spread when most of the communication is happening online. So in this major ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court, which was reviewing the injunction that the district court had placed against the government, basically the court was telling the government, you have to stop pressuring social media companies through coercion or even through what the law calls significant encouragement, which also violates the Constitution. You have to stop coercing or even significantly encouraging social media companies to censor content that is protected by the First Amendment. And the government appealed that decision to the Fifth Circuit Appellate Court. The three-judge panel in the Fifth Circuit upheld that injunction against the government. They ruled that the White House, the Surgeon General, the CDC and the FBI were 
in, clearly in violation of First Amendment rights when they pressured social media companies that even before the case goes to trial, even at this very early stage of discovery, plaintiffs have already presented enough evidence that those four agencies and likely more that were named as defendants were engaging in unconstitutional behavior, violating the highest law of the land, the First Amendment of the United States Constitution that they needed to stop. And I trust that eventually this case will end up at the Supreme Court uh, in terms of the final ruling, if not the injunction, and eventually we'll have a landmark setting case at the Supreme Court, which will uh, hopefully set a precedent that, that will push back on government overreach and government attempts to operate a kind of Orwellian ministry of truth. You're, of course, a private plaintiff on this Missouri versus Biden case, so I just wanted to hear, what does it mean to you personally? Well, it means a lot to me, not just because I was personally censored for information that turned out to be true, is now vindicated, is widely accepted, is endorsed by the CDC and other, you know, mainstream public health Which agencies. information is that, by the way? So I was censored on things related to natural immunity for COVID. I was censored on concerns about safety and efficacy of vaccines, which have turned out to be uh, quite legitimate and, and supported by plenty of research. I was censored for my ethical opinions on vaccine mandates. The first time I was censored was a conversation I had with an independent journalist who actually got fired by her employer for that uh, for that interview, after having that interview, so that profoundly affected her life. Um, she was fired, the interview was taken down off of YouTube. And what's interesting about that interview is I was not discussing any safety or efficacy issues related to the vaccines. I was just discussing ethical issues related to vaccine mandates. It was just an ethical analysis. Which, um, by the way, I'll just mention, is your expertise. Exactly. Is, is what you teach. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. At the time, I was the director of the medical ethics program at the University of California, Irvine. I was on the Orange County uh, Healthcare Agency's vaccine task force. I had expertise to speak on the issue of, uh, of the ethics of mandates. So they were censoring not just um, scientific information or information claim, claiming to argue, you know, argue different scientific viewpoints. They were censoring philosophical uh, ar arguments about ethics and about public policy. So, uh, so it's important to me uh, as a kind of confirmation that not only were the social media companies doing this to me, but they were actually doing this to me at the direct uh, behest and under the directives of the federal government who was clearly violating my constitutional rights. But it means even more to me because we recently petitioned the court to convert this to a class action lawsuit, which means the five of us private plaintiffs are now not just representing ourselves who are censored, we're representing all Americans who were censored under this regime. And I'm very happy about that. I'm very proud to be a stand-in for anyone who doesn't have a public voice, who doesn't have a microphone, who is not being interviewed by journalists like you, to represent their interests, the people that feel powerless in the face of the censorship leviathan, the people who were hammered, who's, you know, where censorship affected their small business, where censorship you know, affected their ability to share information, uh, where censorship affected their ability to share their political opinions. 
And it's those folks I, that I, I think need a voice out there. And I'm very happy that the five of us private plaintiffs are able to represent all Americans who are affected by this censorship leviathan. Well, it's somehow to me fitting that, you know, in your role as, you know, running this medical ethics program at UC Irvine, you felt compelled to enact those ethics as you would teach them and ultimately get fired yeah. by not following the vaccine mandates that were imposed on you. And now you are in a position where you have a platform to once again teach uh, <laughs> uh, ethics through not just theory, but action. Yeah. Well, God's providence is very mysterious. So it's, it's humbling to be here having this conversation with you. It's humbling to be part of a case that probably will go down as a landmark free speech case in the United States history. And I'm glad our case is bringing attention to the issues. I want to also thank the Twitter Files journalists, my friend Andrew Lowenthal, Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, uh, Paul Thacker, and others who have done great work on the journalistic end to draw attention to the what Schellenberger calls the censorship industrial complex. And I think it's going to take journalists, it's going to take legal action, it's going to take people talking around the water cooler and sharing this information with their friends and colleagues to uh, build, to, to fight this battle, not just in the courts, but also in the court of public opinion. Both of those are equally important right now if we're gonna start dismantling this censorship regime. And I think we have a large segment of people in Western nations who are questioning things now that they never questioned before after their experience of what happened during COVID, uh, which is a good thing which is a good thing. I think some people are emerging from that fog and saying, hey, wait, wait a minute, I used to never question what came out of the CDC um, or the integrity of our public health agencies or the integrity of other you know, federal agencies. But now I'm wondering if there's some corruption going on there. And I'm wondering if what I've been told is the science is actually trustworthy. So, so I think that's, that's a good thing. I think some people a significant segment of people, I don't know how many, how many or what percentage of the population, has been chastened by the disaster of our COVID response. And I, I think it's, it's time now for those, those people to recognize that, okay, the, the problems that we saw over the last three years go well beyond COVID. Missouri v. Biden, the private plaintiffs, are most, were mostly initially focused on COVID censorship because that's what we were censored on COVID related content or content challenging the government's preferred pandemic policies. But what we've uncovered on discovery in that case is first of all, there are many more federal agencies involved in this censorship machinery than we initially thought. So we were focused on public health agencies initially like the CDC or the NIH uh, and the White House and the, you know, the Surgeon General. But now there's at least a dozen federal agencies that have been named as defendants in this suit and they range from uh, the FBI and other security agencies, the Department of Homeland Security, um, to even the Treasury Department was involved in censorship. The Census Bureau was involved in censorship. And the range of issues that where the government was censoring the speech of Americans online goes far beyond just dissidents uh, challenging COVID policies to basically, I mean, you could take almost any contentious political issue in American public life, 
from foreign policy issues like our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Ukraine war to monetary policy, which the <laughs> Treasury Department was, you know, you, yeah, you challenge the Fed's monetary policy, you, you know, you might have been censored by the government to gender ideology, to abortion. I mean, highly contentious issues of gr great public importance in American life. The government was engaged in putting its thumb on the scale and controlling what could and could not be said online. I think Americans need to realize that this has been happening, to, to wake up to it and to recognize that, okay, sorting through a complex sea of information is a difficult problem, but this can't possibly be the right solution to that problem. A number of people have flagged for me that we're seeing the beginnings of a messaging campaign similar to what happened at the beginning of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, talk about the need to have some kind of mask mandate. Some institutions have started that again. What are you seeing right now? There are certainly rumblings now, and I think there are trial balloons going up to see um, if we can, if the powers that be can reassert, again, more level of control over micromanaging human behavior from masks to vaccine mandates to some of the other things that we saw during the pandemic. I think there's less public willingness now to go along with those things. I think there's a lot of people who are at least saying, we'll see what they do, but they're at least saying now, I complied with that in the past. I regret having complied with that. I'm not going to do it again in and, the future. And a number of institutions have actually, you know, put in the mask mandate, and a few days later, like, ah, withdrew no. it. Yeah, right. So I think the solution to this now has to be behavioral, right? It's it's not enough just to say that you're not going to comply. You hack. You actually have to not comply. You have to, you know, walk into the, you know, public space, and when you're told to wear a mask, just simply and flatly refuse. And you know, the old lunch counter sit-in of the civil rights movement. Uh, no, I'm not going to move, and you know, you, you could send in the police in here to arrest me if you, if you want, um, but you're going to have to use force to either you know, make me put this thing on my face or remove me from this place where I, I belong just like everyone else. And it seems like such a small gesture again, right? This is what, the, it, we, we've been talking about this, right, yeah. during this interview. It's just a small gesture. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the, the, the refusing to move to the back of the bus, the refusal to leave the lunch counter. Any one or another person who participated in that movement in that way knew that my one gesture alone is not going to accomplish anything. And my one gesture alone could easily be crushed by the powers that be. But they had enough trust in... Uh, their fellow members of society and the others in this developing movement that, no, I'm not going to be the only one. I'm not going to be standing alone. And so my one small gesture of just, you know, this one ordinary individual does in fact matter. And I think people need to develop that confidence today and that trust in, in one another that um, what ordinary Americans do in fact matters very much. And if a sufficient number, it doesn't have to be a majority, um, just a, a sufficiently strong minority simply refuses to comply, these kinds of authoritarian measures will disappear you know, almost immediately, actually, because um, th there is just insufficient force to crush everyone in the resistance. If it's just one or another dissident 
here and there, we can take them out. We can fire them. We can silence them. We can censor them. Um, but if it becomes five, six, seven, nine, ten percent of the population, game over. Well, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Dr. Aaron Cariotti and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Hey everyone, if you enjoyed that last episode, you should check out our new documentary, The Unseen Crisis, Vaccine Stories You Were Never Told. And you can find it at unseencrisis.com.